Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of School of Startups, where we talk to successful tech entrepreneurs on how to start and scale their businesses. On today's episode, we'll be talking about on ideas on how to create a sustainable and long-lasting SaaS business, and even if you have an existing business, how to make your business more sustainable. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Josh Patrick. Josh has over 20 years of experience as an advisor to several private businesses. His specialty is helping owners on maximizing their growth and creating more value in their business. He is a certified financial planner, financial transitionist, financial consultant, a chartered life underwriter. He is also a serial entrepreneur himself and a contributor to many writing sources such as the New York Times, American Express Open Inc., Huffington Post, as well as Forbes. So I have Josh here. I'm sure he'll give a better introduction of himself. So welcome, Josh, and uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. <laughs> I actually think that's a pretty good introduction, so I'm not sure there's a whole lot more. Uh, I've been in business for 40 years. For the first 20 years, I owned a food service and vending company. We had grew that from one and a half employees. I was the one. I had a half-time employee. And we grew that to 90 employees and we sold that in 1995. I went to the life insurance business in 1996, realized it was a terrible employee. And in 1998, opened my own firm. Uh, I've been specializing, working with owners of privately held businesses for well, essentially 40 years because while I was in the vending business, I was also the chairman of the New York State or the National Vending Association Education Training Program where I trained several hundred vending companies in people management and financial management. So I've been at this game for a while. Wow. Lots more experience than I've ever been through. Um, I'm older than you, so I should have more experience. Yeah. yeah, And that's exactly (laughs) the reason why we have here. Experience is important. Do you remember like the moment when, you, you know, can you describe when, when was it that you decided to become an entrepreneur? I'm not sure I decided. I mean, I, I actually don't think people decide to become entrepreneurs. I think they just do it. And um, for me, I was seven. My father owned a wholesale tobacco company. I used to get paid a nickel, a case to put the candy on the shelf. But then I would buy a box or two of candy and go sell it to the neighborhood kids. So I guess that started my road as being an entrepreneur. And from there, I you know did the usual household chore stuff badly. And when I was in high school, I was uh, the manager of our band and I was responsible for getting our bookings. And from there, it went on and on and on and on. And um, I really never considered myself an entrepreneur. I do consider myself an owner of privately held businesses. Uh, and I use those terms really mindfully. An entrepreneur is somebody who wants to be a successful business person. A business owner is somebody who is running a business that is profitable or at least sustainable at some level. So I always use the term, uh, probably have business owner. I never use the term entrepreneurs when I talk about other business owners. Cool. So maybe that, that one moment where you were, you were talking about where you started working with that, that yourself and that one and a half employee, um, you know, that moment where you decided to actually start that business, wh- how did that look like? I'm kind of curious how you went from shifting before that moment to starting in, in that business. Well, it was actually a, a, a piece of my father's business. I was working for him. I graduated from college 
And I think my road into the his business from graduating from college is not atypical. It's actually the path of least resistance. I looked around and I said, gee, I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is why I went to college. So I realized lawyers have to defend guilty people and I didn't want to do that. Um, so I looked around and I said, what I want to do, I had some, I had a lot of offers at Boston University to go to work with them because I was a, a resident advisor at the school and I had done some pretty interesting things along the way, which uh, nobody else had done. But then I looked, I said, well, gee, the family business looks good, so I'll go over there. Uh, my father and I were like oil and water and we had an operation about 100 miles away from the main operation, one account. And he sent me up there to close it. And instead of closing it, I went out and picked up five new accounts, uh, went back to him. And he said, well, I don't want to go to Plattsburgh anymore. It was in Plattsburgh, New York, which is right on the Canadian border. And uh, he said, why don't you buy it from me? So I bought the business from him. And we went from one, actually a half-time employee, uh, to 90 employees 20 years later. I ended up buying his business also. I bought it from him. Oh, about, you know, in 1987, 88. So that was my road. And I don't think it's especially atypical for other folks I know who are second um, generation business owners. Right. Yeah, I think I had a similar experience like as you when I when I was an engineer, even though I was, you know, making decent money, I was in that corporate world. I thought it was the right mo movement. But just inside, I think if you just know you're an entrepreneur, you just know, right? Like there's no um, you know, I just have to follow that itch and until you, uh, you know, business owner, you just felt like you have to run, you know, something by yourself. Um, well, I, I tell people I'm totally unemployable, which is why I have to work for myself. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so you have, uh, you know, tons of experience and stories. I'm sure you've went through, you know, a lot of lessons, failures and whatnot. Um, would you say, you know, there's some, can you share some important lessons or mistakes that you've made over that period that would say made you a better entrepreneur today? Yeah, the biggest mistake I made was when I, well, I have to back up a little bit and tell you a little story. And then I'll tell you the biggest mistake because it kind of leads into that. Um, when I went to Plattsburgh and bought out my father's business, our main competitor went bankrupt six months after I got there. So we ended up buying that business out of bankruptcy. And for the next two years, literally everything I did was highly successful. I just, it seemed like I couldn't make a mistake. And I thought that all that success I had was because of my brilliance. Well, as it turns out, it was just plain dumb luck. And then, of course, when you have good luck, you're eventually going to have some bad luck that goes along with that because that's just the way life works. And instead of taking responsibility when things went bad, I would always blame somebody else. Or I would justify why things weren't my fault. And that's, if you're going to be a leader in the business, you're going to be an owner in the business, and that's the way you approach your business. And by the way, that's how most business owners approach their business. You're never going to have a really big business that's truly sustainable, because nobody's going to trust you as the leader. So the big pivot I had to make was, instead of blaming and justifying my way through life, I had to look in the mirror and said, what did I do that caused this sort of thing to happen. And once I started looking at myself, then a whole bunch of other things happened along the way that allowed us to really start working on our business and making something that was highly, highly sustainable. 
And what is so for for you use that word you know sustainable a lot you know what can you define that a little more and yeah sustainable for me is is economically and personally sustainable and economically sustainable means that you're creating enough profit to fill what i call the four buckets of profit you know one of my friends is a guy named mike mccallowitz and mike wrote this really good book called profit first you may have heard of it and uh mike says you know basically is the envelope system for business is what i what I call it, and frankly, I think that's what Mike calls it too. And, but what he does is he has one envelope called profit. Well, I have four buckets that fit inside that envelope that have to be filled. And my definition of a fully economically sustainable business is all four of those buckets are being fully filled. And the four buckets are your personal lifestyle, having a fully funded emergency program and in the age of the coronavirus, Everyone's seen how important having that, that excess cash hanging around someplace that's available, either in a bank account, in an investment account, or as a line of credit is incredibly important today. Even though there's, every government in the universe has loans going on, if they're anything like the US, they're not happening fast, nor are they happening efficiently. So an emergency fund is really important. Number three is a fully funded growth program. And a fully funded growth program is not just marketing and sales, it's also having the money for what it costs your business to do growth. And for example, in the, my vending business, one of my bad things that happened was I almost went bankrupt twice because I didn't realize how to read a cash flow statement. I thought that profits meant cash. Well, they don't mean cash. You can be very profitable and run out and have your business run out of cash. That actually happened to me. It didn't happen once because I was a slow learner. It happened twice. Um, so <clears throat> a fully funded growth program means, do you have the money for receivables that are going to be increased? Do you have the money for payables that are going to be increased? If you're in the manufacturing business or distribution business, do you have the money to buy the capital assets that are going to allow your business to grow? So that's a fully funded growth program. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then number four is a fully funded retirement program that will allow you to help yourself reach financial freedom from your business because someday you might want to stop running your business you might want to stop working and if you think your business is going to provide you all the money you need for retirement you're sorely mistaken in fact we have a tool which we call the four boxes of financial independence i made it into a quiz and to do that quiz, um, it takes about seven or eight minutes to do so, but it's going to tell you whether you're on the road to financial independence or not. So um, what we find is often retirement plans and the rent that you get from your building that you own and should be buying if you run a business will provide you with more cash flow than the sale of your business does when you decide to leave which is why people aren't selling the business. They know they can't afford to retire, so they have to stay there and keep running it even though they don't want to. So a fully economically sustainable business creates enough excess cash to fill those four buckets. So, so just one question to add to that. So what you're, you're saying is look at the real estate as your source of, of retirement, I guess, as you know, when you're exiting to help you kind of. Yeah, I might decide that I, I wanna stop working and I don't want to be, and I don't want to do my business at all anymore. But being a landlord is not such a tough thing. If I sell my business, I can get probably get a five or a 10 year lease from the person who's buying my business to operate it, you know, to operate out of that building. And if I bought the building 15 years before I retired, which you should have done, 
you probably don't have a mortgage. So all the cash you get for that gets to go in your pocket. So let's say I have a building that's worth a million dollars just for fun. And let's say I get an 8% cap rate, which means I'm getting $80,000 a year in rent, and it's a triple net, which means that the renter is paying all the, you know, the taxes and all that kind of stuff. So I have $80,000 a year coming in. Now, for me to match $80,000 a year coming in, I need to have $2 million in investable assets because from a financial planning point of view, I'm going to tell you, you can spend 4% of your assets and plan for inflation, not run out of money. So that means I have to have $2 million. Now to have $2 million investable on the sale of my business, I need to have sold my business for somewhere around $3.8 million. And the reason I need to do that is because I'm going to sell my business and I don't just get to keep all that cash when I sell my business. I have selling costs. I've got the broker costs. I've got my lawyer's costs. I've got my accountant's costs. And I have the tax costs, which are usually somewhere around 40 or 50% of the total sale cost. So if I sell my business for 4 million bucks, I'm going to be left with somewhere around $2 million when I'm done. So there aren't many businesses that sell for $4 million, by the way. That means your business is making somewhere around six, $700,000 a year. And in fact, there aren't many businesses that even do six or $700,000 a year in sales. So if you're counting on your business to be your retirement plan and you think it's going to do any more than 20 or 30% of your plan, you're solely kidding yourself. You're not ever going to leave. Um, it's where I, I coined this term oh, probably 30 years ago, which I call PERMA-5. And PERMA-5 is when someone tells me something is always five years away. And I would often ask business owners in, a, in workshops that I just said, when are you going to get out of your business? And most people would say five years from now. And if I went back to him three years later, I'd say, ask the same question. I still get the same answer. Two years later, I still get the same answer. And I finally figured out what PERMA 5 means is the owner knows there's something wrong with their business. They just don't know what it is. But whatever it is, is going to magically reveal itself. And the owner will be able to fix it over the next five years, which never happens, of course. So... Um, so I came up with this term I call PERMA-5, and most business owners live in PERMA-5, especially if they're over 50. Yeah, makes sense. So I, I, I'm gonna, we're going to add that uh, link you were talking about, that exercise for our audience to look at. We'll add that into the show notes. I'd... Yeah, and, and the link is, by the way, is you just go to thecashflowcode.com. Okay, okay. Um, just, just adding on to the, you know, the whole COVID situation we're in right now to be a little bit more relevant, uh, with the clients you're working with right now, what advice are you giving to them, to these business owners and, you know, ma maximizing their, their uh, you know, their cash flow and, and being kind of prepared on how to uh, handle the situation? Well, I'm telling you to do a disaster plan, first of all. I'm a huge fan of scenario planning. And scenario planning means, okay, uh, I'm going to take a look forward and it's sort of like a budget, but I don't do one budget. I do three, two or three budgets. And most of the time, what we do is we do worst case, probable case, and best case. But in this case, I know pretty much where we are. And I'm going to say, let's see what's really going on with what you've got coming in the door. And that's not going to change for the next 30, 60, 90 days. So where is your cash position at 30 days? What's your cash position at 60 days? And what's your cash position at 90 days? Now, luckily, most of my clients 
um, have been working with me for a while. So we've been working on this sort of thing of having sources of cash available to last us if something goes wrong. Now, I didn't think this was going to be it, but I was expecting something to happen. So that's what we do. And then <clears throat> for people who are not, um, you know, able to have, you know, have positive cash at that point in time or have any cash, then you have to start thinking about yourself as a turnaround artist. And what a turnaround consultant will do is they're going to come in and say, okay, let me take a look at your business. And there are no rules. You know, laying off people is just the first thing they look at. It's not even close to the last thing I look at. And a good turnaround artist is going to tell you, look, is don't lay off people unless you have to. Instead, look at reducing hours across the board. You know, if you have 50 people and I reduce hours by, and I go down by 20% with everybody, that's like laying off 10 people. And I don't lay off anybody and instead, and when times are really tough and I go to you and say, we're gonna put you on 32 hours instead of 40, most people will understand and say, I get it. Now, if you're really smart, you practice what's called open book management, which means you share all your financials with your employees. And we can talk about why that's not a dangerous thing to do. And most business owners think it is and they're wrong. So that's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you start looking at what you owe people. And if you absolutely are running out of cash and you have no cash, then you need to call up your biggest suppliers and you say, here's what we need to do. I can't pay you. Now, if you force me to do so, I have to go into bankruptcy. I would rather not do that. I would rather take what I owe you and term it out over the next three years and pay you in 36 months and pay you five or 6% interest. That can often help make it last for a period of time. And you do that with everyone. You, do it, you might go to your landlord and say, you know, I can't pay you for the next three months. And on top of that, you're gonna to have to reduce your rent by 30% if you wanna keep me. Now, landlords are gonna say, what are my options? Because they may not like it. And you don't wanna be doing this. And by the way, when you do this, you have to share your cash flow forecasts with your, advice, with your creditors. So they believe what you're actually saying is true. And if I go to you and say, I have no cash, I'm not gonna have any cash in 60 days, and we need to be taking action now so you don't lose me as a customer, and I show you all my supporting documentation behind it, you're likely to take me seriously. If I just tell you, you're gonna wonder, is this guy using his excuse as a way to beat me up? So, so um, you, need to, you need to realize, you gotta put yourself in the shoes of the people you're asking to give you a favor. Now, I did, I did this back in 1978, in 1979, 1980. And in that days, you, mean, you, were too, you weren't even born then, probably. <laughs> well, interest rates were 21%. I owed $2.5 million. So we were in really dire straits. And that's exactly what I did. I went to my three biggest suppliers and I said, here's the deal. We can do this or you can force me into bankruptcy. And if we do this, you'll likely get all your money back. You keep me as a customer or you'll get pennies in the dollar. What would you like to have? And guess what they chose? 
take what they can get. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't because I was proud of it. No. But it was, you know, what it's we had to do to survive. It's the reality of the situation, right? You have to adapt. Yeah, we had to do that to survive. Exactly. So one thing uh, I'm kind of curious to kind of touch base to another point is you said, you know, what do you see as the biggest mistakes that keep entrepreneurs okay, so, or, or business owners from achieving, you know, quote unquote success or financial freedom with their business, which is ultimately, I think, a lot of the, the goal here of a lot of businesses getting. Yeah, you know, they don't they don't they don't create what I call sale ready business, which doesn't mean they're going to sell their business. It just means that it could be sold and somebody would actually want to buy it and pay you a reasonable price with reasonable terms. And by the way, reasonable terms mean I'm not going to be being the bank for the buyer. They're going to pay me mostly cash. When I say mostly cash, I mean 90, 95%. So that's a sale ready company. Now, the, mo the, the most important thing that you can do to create a sale ready company is the owner makes themselves operationally irrelevant in the day to day operations of the business. And the number one skill it takes to do that is to become an expert at delegating. And most business owners never even become marginally good at delegating. They stay terrible at it, which is why their businesses never grow past 15 to 20 people. That's exactly it, yeah. So hmm. if you wanna learn how to, you know, my first book um, really talks about that. It's a you know fictional business family. And in the book, we talk about um, what it takes to create this, you know, economically and personally sustainable business. And there's four operational things that have to happen. And then the four buckets of profit need to be filled based on doing those four operational things correctly. And number one on that, well, actually number two on the list is to become operationally irrelevant, but it's the most important thing that the business owner has to do. Right. Yeah, I think I made that, we all made that first that mistake with our, our first business. You just get so uh, you know, attached to it, doing everything, wanting to be involved in every single decision. And, you know, the kind of micromanagement comes in. And then, you know, over time, you kind of learn to hopefully let go and trust your people to, to do it better than you, hopefully at least equal or better than you can do it. Um, how do you kind of overcome that? What's that? What did you use or, you know, what tools do you give to your people to, to overcome that letting go? Yeah, my first mentor had a great saying. And it, the, the um, short version was EIA. And EIA stands for expect, inspect, accept. So if you're going to be a good delegator, you set clear expectations for what you want. You inspect it along the way to make sure it's being done. And you accept the work or you go back and reset expectations. And if you do that and you're not micromanaging, and when you first start delegating, there's two things that happen. Either you're a micromanager or you're an abdicator. I've never seen anybody do it right out of the box. I mean, never. Delegating is a learned art. It's not something anybody does naturally. And anybody does well. And there's a bunch of reasons behind that. And I'll get into the two most important in a second. So if I set a clear expectation for what I want you to do, and you feedback to me what it is that expectation is, and we're both on the same page. Because I can tell you, you know, I want you to do something, and likely you're gonna hear different what I, than what I thought I said. So the first we do is we make sure we, we're, we're in alignment on what the expectation is. You go off and do it, 
and I leave you a little bit of time, it might be a day, it might be two days, it might be two weeks, but I'm gonna put a tickler in my to-do list that I need to follow up with you about this on a particular date. Now, I often will say, I'm gonna check back with you two days, three days, four days from now to see how we're doing. And if you have a problem, please get to me before I come to you in four days. Now, that's what I do now. It took me years to figure out you had to put that piece in there. So then I go and I inspect it. I say, okay, we're on track or we're not on track. And actually, if you run a company and you use a, a methodology called Scrum, which I highly affect for project management, you know, I suggest in the, AS, in the SaaS world, all your people know what Scrum is because that's how they're building their products. Well, you can use Scrum for every process in your business, and you should. I use Scrum with my blue, I go to my contractor and say, how would you like to learn an unfair advantage over all your competitors that will allow you to consistently win any bid you want, increase your profits by 30% and drive your competitors crazy? And they asked me, I said, well, how do you do that? I said, well, we're gonna use this methodology called Scrum. So I teach them how to do that and we talk about it. And essentially, if you have a daily huddle, you have this check-in for people. They have a chance to tell you whether they're having a problem. Now, they're not gonna tell you if they're having a problem or not if two things are not in place. These are the two things that, that really keep people from being great delegators, is they don't trust their people and they don't have a um, culture of mistakes. So if I think I'm gonna get clobbered if I make a mistake, I'm not gonna raise my hand and tell you I made a mistake. And when you're delegating, people are learning new skills. And when you learn a new skill, you don't do it right the first time. You know, you, everyone uses bicycle riding as an example of how you learn stuff. You get on, you fall off, you get on, you fall off, and eventually you learn how to ride. And because you're little, you kind of bounce. You don't, you know, hurt yourself. Uh, well, it's the same with any skill that somebody needs to learn. They're likely not going to do it right out of the box. And if they do, it was pure luck. And just to, uh, to add to that, the EIA acronym. So the first part is the the expectation. So, you know, you said being, you know, being clear on your expectations. And I think, you know, one way of doing that is, you know, possibly writing it all out so that it's, you know, we can we can both read it and, you know, review it and make sure we're, you know, there's no what I heard and what, what you said. Um, and then secondly, but how, how do you set the, not, not, not the clear expectations, but the, the right and appropriate expectations, meaning, um, okay, I think I can, you know, you should be hitting X amount, you know, for sales or, or, or you know, calls or, or whatever, but, you know, the real that's expectation. Not delegate. That's not, that's not delegating. Mm. Delegating is I want you to do a particular task. I want you to make 25 phone calls a day. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, that's an easy delegation. Yeah. Now, I probably will want to say I want you to make 25 phone calls to this type of person and have this type of conversation with five of them. And if we're not doing that, we need to find out, we need to start taking a look at what our process is and why that's not happening. And we may find out that having this type of conversation with five is not possible from 25. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's two. But that's a trial and error thing where, we, where mistakes come in. So we don't, I mean, look, I'm gonna set an expectation 
And that may or may not be an achievable expectation, which is where trust comes in. Because if somebody doesn't feel safe with me and I delegate to them, they're not likely to say to me, say, I'm not sure that's a realistic expectation on your part. I might say, is that re a re reasonable expectation? If you don't trust me, you're just going to nod your heads and hope I don't get yelled at. So if they know I'm going to take personal responsibility, and if it doesn't work, I'm not going to blame them. I'm going to say, what about our system needs to be tweaked? I'm more likely to have an honest response from somebody. Yeah, open communication makes sense. Uh, Does that make sense? Makes sense, yeah. Um, kind of shifting gears here from a, you know from a venture backed you know SaaS uh, business. So you know many founders in that space, you know they 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 focus on the business a little bit different in their approaches. They they focus you know more on top line revenue, and maybe they don't worry yeah. too much about profitability as much you know in order to get either a acquired for you know some kind of strategic buyer or you know at some point IPO. What's, what's your thoughts around this model when compared to... I hate that model. Yeah. I absolutely hate it. Yeah. I, I really hate it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it is the most risky business strategy that you can possibly pursue. Now, the reason it works in Silicon Valley is because people are getting... The big companies, the Apples, the Googles, the Salesforces of the world, they acquire really crummy companies. And they don't acquire the companies because they want the companies, they acquire the companies, they want the engineering talent. And the venture capital folks know that. So when, you know, um, there was a great book written about uh, a company that was one of these venture-backed companies and a combination of Facebook and Twitter eventually acquired the talent in the company. And the venture guys made a whole bunch of money because they acquired the talent and the company itself wasn't very good at what it did. And, and that's a model that, that works in Silicon Valley. It doesn't work anywhere, and it works, um, I don't know if it works in the biotech world or not. I have a, a son-in-law who's a, a molecular biologist and uh, you know, he works in a lot of these startups and it doesn't seem to be the same sort of strategy works in biotech. It seems to work in, in computer technology, but not in biotech. Um, so it's really, it appears to me to be a Silicon Valley sort of thing. Yeah. And it's incredibly dangerous. It is, yeah. Now, if you don't mind, you know, doing startup to startup to startup to startup, and if you're a good engineer, you don't ever worry about where your next job is. But if you're a guy banging nails and you're building a contract, and you're starting your company, and you're only, for, and by the way, I got into this big fire with my father about this one, my vending company, is we were growing our top line like crazy, but our bottom line was suffering. And he kept saying to me, you know, your top line doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how much money is in your pocket at the end of the year. And I used to argue with him about three or four years, I argued with him, and then the Grim Reaper hit me. And as it turns out, he was right and I was wrong. So what I learned from that is cash is king. You don't have cash unless you have profits. So if you're not focusing on profits, you're wasting your time. And you, you know, by the way, there's 28 million businesses in the United States, and you're talking about a few hundred that are venture back who use the S, you know, that strategy. I love SaaS businesses. And I think that the best SaaS businesses are the ones that do vertical markets. They just make, they print money. You know, they, they have no venture backing. They want no venture backing. 
you know, I guess the poster child for that is ClickFunnels, Russell Brunson's company. Russell has no outside funding as far as I know. And as far as I can tell, that guy is absolutely printing money. Now, he's brilliant, but I don't think he's any more brilliant than anybody else in Silicon Valley. It's just he decided to run a company that was to his benefit, not in his client's benefit, not being run and controlled by some VCs. Exactly. Well, I think the, the idea is that, you know, we just focus on top line. And then once we exit, let the other guys figure out, you know, how to make it profitable and let them kind of you know, do the layoffs and optimize and, you know, set up the operations a bit more efficient, efficiently. Um, but just to add to that, you know, you said you, spe- you spoke about, you know, talent on, on that side, people uh, acquire for talent. You know, I think effective hiring is probably one of the most important skills to have as a founder, probably the most important. Um, yet it's extremely challenging as, you know, if, if people are willing to spend millions or billions of dollars to acquire a company for the people. Um, you know, how, how did you manage to go from, you know, 35% success rate in hiring to an 85% success Right. Can you share your, your story behind that? Yeah, we call the stage two hiring process. It's a very, very simple thing. First of all, you need to, you must have clearly articulated values for what your company is about. And what, you must have clarifying statements around those values. So once you do that, by the way, that's step one in creating a sustainable business. Values-led companies do way better than any company that's not values-led. Because everyone knows what they're doing. They're going in the same direction. And they can, they can join your dream is what I, way I say it. So um, what you do is you take out a piece of paper and you write three things out. Will do, can do, fit factors. And the can do things are the technical skills you need to do for the job. Those are the knockouts. Whether, you know, if I'm hiring, you know, a C++ programmer, um, I can do be C++ programming expertise. If they can't do that, I'm not even going to talk to them past that. But that's not the reason I'm hiring them, because I'm going to look next at will-do factors, which are what are the activities they have to be willing to do to be successful in their job? So in other words, it might be they have to be willing to work 12-hour days, because in the tech world, the SSAS world, people work stupid hours. And if that's your culture and people do that and someone's willing to work six hours or eight hours because they have to go home and take care of their kids, well, it's probably not going to be a good match for your company. And then you write down what your values are. And as you're talking to your, to your potential hires, you ask them open-ended questions and ask them to tell you stories. For example, I'm, one of my beliefs is every company needs to have personal responsibility as a core value. Because if you're not personally responsible, how can you run a company that makes any sense? So I would probably say, tell me a story about when uh, something you were doing in the past job didn't work out and shut up and let them talk. And then I would just ask more questions about that. What about that made you do this? Why, where did you do that from? I try not to ask why questions because I ask why it puts you on the defensive. So I just want to keep them talking. They're going to reveal through the conversations whether they're willing to do the will-do factors and whether they're a fit for our company, which is the fit factors, which are those values. After I'm done with the interview, I go through those 15 items or so, and sometimes it's 12, and 
sometimes it's 18, but I don't want to, I like to keep it at 15. On a scale of one to 10, with one being low, 10 being the highest, I go down and rate it. Now, if I happen to have 9, 10, 10, 10 for can do, and 5, 5, 5, or 10, 10, 10, and will do, and 2, 3, 5, 8 in values, I can't hire that person, even though they are perfect technical skill and they're willing to do what I need to have done because they're going to wreck my culture. And if you hire somebody like that, they become a brilliant jerk. And in the SAS world, there are a lot of brilliant jerks running around that people put up with. But you spend more time managing a brilliant jerk than you do 10 people who are good fits for your company. And the truth is, at some point, the brilliant jerk has to go away. Otherwise, he just caused too much havoc and you spend too much effort. And after you fire that brilliant jerk, and by the way, brilliant jerks exist in all companies, not just tech companies. You're going to have a line out your door saying, what took you so long? And I used to ask people to say, you know, I think you have a mouth and you could have opened it and told me because I don't know everything that goes around. With 90 employees, I didn't know everything that was going on. And it would take me a while to get rid of the brilliant jerks, which were our hiring errors. But over the years, when I, we force people into using this system, it's a simple system, which is incredibly um, accurate for hiring the right person. And we also would use the Colby Index, and I use DISC, and you know, we do some personality testing along the way to help us as tools with that. But the real tool is, can you learn to ask open-ended questions? So you need to have training for the people who are your hirers and my belief is everyone needs to be a hire. I don't like the term hiring manager because that means I'm hiring somebody and I'm going to give them to you to work with. And all the research shows it's not company's culture that makes people successful. It's the team that makes it successful. So those team leaders need to be involved in the hiring process. And they need to have be the final yes-no arbitrator of whether somebody can be hired in and join their team. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the, the, the challenge is that you have those, you know, brilliant jerks who are, you know, bringing in a lot of money or, you know, you're a money maker, but then, you know, short term, it seems like the, the best decision to keep them. But, you know, in the end, I think the long term is where that poison sinks in and starts affecting other people. And then, then it really affects your, your bottom line, right? Long term. Or you start spending a lot of time managing problems, not managing opportunities. True. Yeah. Just kind of, uh, you know, on that base where you're talking about uh, where, you know, your startup uh, bootstrapped company, for example, your SaaS company privately held, what are some underrated resources that you can leverage to grow your business if you're not, you know, venture backed? Well, the first thing you got to do, I mean, any business, if you're, especially if you're not going to be, if you're not going to be venture backed, your entire focus when you start your business to get the positive cash flow which means your focus needs to be on sales, which means that you need to get out there knocking some doors. So, you know, you get a minimally viable product, you know, something that looks like you could sell it, get it out there and start talking to people about whether it's something they want to buy. And you can do that, by the way, part-time as a side hustle. You don't need to do that, you know, quit your job and go full-time into this. You, know, you can do a wireframe of what you're thinking about especially if you're in a vertical market and you go to people in that vertical market and you say, um, is this something you would be interested in? And more importantly, would you spend your money on it if I was able to produce it? 
And what you might do is you might go to those first, you know, three or four, 10 or 20 customers and say, um, I will give you a deal. And I get, you see this all the time where people are selling you stuff for, you know, a few hundred dollars and you have lifetime access to the company. So although your, your model eventually is going to be a membership model, right. where you're paying an annual or monthly, you know, membership for it, right. but they get the, your cash off the ground. If you go and say, you know, if I get, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, I can go on Upwork and hire some programmers and get this thing started. So pre-sale as much as possible upfront, get as much cash as possible, and then use that too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's Love friends it. and family. Exactly. There's credit cards. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's, you know, second mortgages on your house. Um, I don't especially like any of those except friend of, friends and family. And friends and family, you have to realize that um, you want to be really, really, really upfront with them saying, you put money in this, the chance you're getting it back is not all that high. Sure. It's a donation almost, right? Look at this. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost a donation. Yeah. Um, so you'll find that your friends and family will mostly say, I'm going to pass, but your family may not. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, so final question from my side, Josh, um, you know, I have a lot of, you know, people in my network or people I know they're looking to start a new venture, whether it's software or, or you know, full on uh, retail business. Uh, but what they get stuck on is, you know, finding the right idea. They always get stuck on that. I don't feel it's the right idea. Um, how do you suggest they overcome that, uh, that that thought and get started to really just, you know, take action today and, and go out there and create something? Yeah, there is no right. I mean, the, the truth is all businesses are constantly pivoting. Um, it might be in the pivots are of all sorts. You know, pivots can be internal pivots. They can be external pivots. Um and it doesn't really matter. One of my favorite mantras, I took this innovation seminar with a guy named Doug Hall, who had, I forgot what the name of his company is, but it's, a, it's uh, uh, he's an incredibly good innovator and teaches innovation can be a system, which I also believe, by the way. And one of his mantras is fail fast, fail cheap. And that's become one of my mantras. If you're gonna innovate, it's small experiments, small tries, minimal viable product, see if it works. If it doesn't work, don't put a lot of effort into getting something off the ground, put a little bit of effort in to see if it works, because then you're not likely to get stuck. You know, there's a field of, of uh, study called behavioral economics. And behavioral economics talks about how we act around, what are our behaviors around economics. Now, their principles work almost everywhere. And one of the principles is a thing called sunk cost. The more effort I put into something or the more money I put into something, the less likely I'm willing to let it go and move on. So if I'm putting a little bit of effort in and it doesn't work, which happens most of the time, I'm willing to let it go and do something else. Shut it down and move so, on. Yeah, so my, my advice always with people who are starting up and say, I don't know if my idea is a good idea, mm -hmm. is test it. Just go out there. The worst that can happen is you're going to find out it's a crummy idea. And by the way, most of the time, it's a crummy idea. <laughs> yeah, very true. Cool. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes lots of sense. Um, Josh, thank you. I, I feel like we can we can go on here for another couple hours, but you know, th thank you so much for being a guest today and sharing you know your, your background and experience with our audience. Uh, I know if, if anyone is interested, uh, I know Josh has his own podcast called The Sustainable, Sustainable Business. 
Uh, if you guys Actually, we just it. changed the name of it. Oh, what is it now? <laughs> it's called cracking. The, it's now called cracking the cash flow code. Cracking the cash flow code. So that's your new podcast. Yeah, okay. everyone with sustainable business kept thinking it was about environmental sustainability, that's which cool. I think is incredibly important. Sure, but that's not what I deal. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Check it out. Cash flow code. Um, yeah, cracking the cash flow code. Cash flow code. And I say you're also the author of a book called Sustainable: A Fable About Creating a Personally and Economically Sustainable Business. And you also have your it website, yep. sustainablebusiness.co, right? Yep, sustainablebusiness.co. Okay. And my personal email address is jpatrick at stage2planning.com. That's the number two. Okay. Um, and there's also contact me forms on our websites. Uh, just fill it out. And I am sort of email attached to hip. And unless I'm doing something like this, I mostly return them within an hour. Awesome. Yeah, I noticed that when we, we messaged. Um, cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to add for our audience before we wrap it up? Um, I can't think of anything. I think just, you know, the main thing is, especially today, is uh, as you're building your business, think about having it for 40 years. Don't think about it for five or 10 years. Because the truth is, this is one of my new projects. I'm calling it the 100-year project. Somebody your age, you're going to live to 100, most likely. That's a long life. If you're going to be a privately held business, you can't be doing the day-to-day -day stuff for 40, 50 years that you're going to get burned out. So find a way to keep yourself from getting burned out and enjoy your business more. Awesome. Lots of hidden gems here. Thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Cool. Well, thank you guys, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and uh, we'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you all for joining us on today's episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify. If you'd like to learn more about entrepreneurship, make sure to check out our School of Startups videos on YouTube as well. Until then, see you guys on the next episode.